Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. How are things in Kansas? They're still here. It's still weird to do this remotely, but I, I think I like it. I'm starting to get used to Atchison, Kansas, a town of 9,000 people surrounded by farmland, and it doesn't have a lot of stuff. To go find a restaurant, you got to drive pretty far, but, you know, it's quiet. People know each other. Little Atchison, Kansas in northeast Kansas. What would you say the culture is like there? Oh, you see what I did there? Oh, you are smart. Well, you know, the campus culture at Benedictine College is one that searches for God. Honest, honestly, I, it's everywhere. It's an amazing student body here. And so we're going to be talking about culture today and specifically how culture is the record of human beings search for their relationship with the divinity. And that's what we're going to talk about. All right. So without further ado, episode two of season four of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, so uh, last week we talked a little bit about your new gig, Dennis. And yes. uh, I'm very interested to you hear... You didn't say oh, much about it, though. No, we didn't, but I, I'm very interested to hear maybe a little more about not just you know what you plan on doing uh, with this Center for Beauty and Culture, but maybe like some more context about what is this foundation of beauty and culture and how that's going to lead, I guess, in your understanding, how is that going to lead the culture to be kind of renewed and restored? Well, that's part of the thing here. You know, last week, Chris was described as the executive director of Adoremus. I'm called the executive director of the Center for Beauty and Culture, which just began about eight days ago. So I'm not exactly sure what it's going to be yet. But Benedictine College, you know, is this interesting place where They've tripled, more than tripled their student body. They've built all these new dorms. It's this intensely Catholic place. And so all the students come here are very excited about the faith. And um, they realize that they've kind of done what they wanted to do here in their strategic plan over the last 20 years. And now they want to turn that outward and the great stuff that they're doing here to share it with the world. So they've started a couple of these centers uh, where you have events where the, the people who work or teach there go out and give lectures and so on. So the idea is to take this notion of beauty and culture and send it out to the world in whatever way that is. So now you That know, seems like a great mission. It is. It's a big daunting mission. But you know, the Liturgy Guys is now part of that mission, right? Where what, what? I guess you, we could say we're brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at Aramus and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. And so what that's going to be is still to be determined. Most of it is, you know, teaching for me. You have um, no shoes to fill. Well, that's true. Actually, I have some teeny tiny shoes, uh, but hopefully they'll stretch as, as I grow with them. So I'll have to talk to people around here and see what they want. But the basic idea is that culture is the way that ideas are carried. So if you go off to a football game and you, you sing the cheer of your team or whatever it is you didn't study that in a school somewhere like culture just carried you into being a cubs fan or a bears fan or a chiefs fan or whatever it is does even benedictine, here does benedictine have a football team dennis it does have a football team and they have a school Aren't they song the raven claws they're just the ravens oh right no claws <laughs> and um so there's this like cheer that 
yesterday at convocation, all the freshmen were kind of officially incorporated into the college and they all did this rah-rah kind of clapping cheer that I don't know. Like I haven't learned the culture yet, but they do. And so that reinforces their idea. So you see these ideas are carried through the culture. And so one of the things they realized here was that the faith is also carried through the culture. When you see a Christmas tree or a birthday cake or a cross or an Easter egg, like those things are carried by the culture and they mean something. And if those things fall out of the culture or if the culture forgets what they actually mean, then you have lost the content of the faith. So the realization that culture is important, that ideas are carried through it, particularly the faith is carried through it, is uh, something pretty darn important. And you see a new parish or a parish that's lost its connection to the larger Catholic culture without the traditional hymns or practices or devotions or art or architecture. You can see there's something sort of narrow and time-bound about it as opposed to expansive and bringing the great tradition forward. So that's... um, Part of what we're going to do here is figure out how does the faith get carried by culture. And then beauty is this revelation of, you know, what God's own mind. And so culture and beauty often go together because if the culture is ugly and gross and people find it repellent, then they're not going to want to do it. If it's beautiful, delightful, and sweet, people say, oh yeah, I want to do that too. How do I, how do I get involved in that? So that's kind of the founding principles, I guess, for the center, whatever it actually grows into in the next few years. I have a question for you. Yes. And this may be a terrible question, but it's Probably. something that, that still trips me up. Um, how does what you're going to be doing there have anything to do with inculturation or enculturation? Can you talk about that a little? Because there's two different words there, and what they mean is different. Right. Well, inculturation, properly speaking, is the incorporation of the Christian message into a culture that has never heard it before. So if you find a tribe of people somewhere and they've never had contact with outsiders, they may never heard of Christ, the idea is how do you bring Christ into their culture in a way that makes sense to them? And so it's so that they can understand and know Christ without it doing violence to their own culture. There's a lot of church documents on that. Would that Um, be like these freshmen coming to Benedictine, you know, experiencing what it's like to be there, learning the cheer, you know, that type of stuff? That's actually called acculturation, A-C-C, which is where you you become... (laughs) Um, incorporated into a culture by learning their ways and the things that they do. And so that's not uh, necessarily encountering Christ for the first time, but it's learning the ways of the culture. So if you move to Paris, you're going to have to learn the Parisian way, speech, oh, like a- how you walk around. It's kind of like that, right? Yep. And so Heart there's different... Gosh, you are so old, Chris. What song is that? You ought to know that's Billy Joel. That's right, yeah. Um... And so culture becomes the bearer of how you learn how things ought to be done. And it can be a secular culture, right? You go into a fraternity, you know, and you have to learn how to be hazed and (laughs) what pledges do and stuff like that. But at the high level, you learn how the world is understood in the mind of God, how God wants to be worshipped, how you learn to be a good person. So it works at all these different levels, from the citizenship to the uh, participation in the life of the Trinity. With some, I, we've uh, had uh, spirited debates about this topic before, Dennis. But you know, is the church a culture? Does she have a culture and things like that? And uh, uh, but whatever the answer uh, to that is, you know, if if the root of culture is cult, and so it, it, it's kind of founded upon this relationship with God, and so uh, I think you know, at the, at the heart of any culture, if it's not surrounded by this relationship with God, which is the relationship of cult, then it's going to be some sort of weak, uh, deceptive culture. Right. Or it's not going to be as important as other things. So if you think about 
like I said, the, the, the culture of a fraternity. So, you know, there was probably a time when the fraternities were based on the ideals of sportsmanship and brotherhood and all that. And those are good things. And then eventually it becomes, you know, how, how drunk can we get and, you know, how many girls can we get to our party? Um, and so that's kind of still a culture, right? You're learning the ways that you do that, but it's a lower participation in the noble things of, of humanity. You start so working we're talking at, about like capital C culture? Well, little C, big C, either way, it's, it's the, I, <laughs> the idea that um, cultural things have more or less importance, just like the things in life do. Some of them are about shopping, right? You need groceries. Some of them are about governing, so you you know serve in the state legislature. Then some of them are about eternity. And so they're all cultural things, but they have different levels of importance and significance in the life of a person. All right. So, But Dennis, I mean, this is... Conf- I mean, we're all really smart, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, no, this is very confusing things. I mean, how do you, how do you teach, uh, you know, a sophomore or a freshman or a junior in college about uh, beauty and or culture? Well, let's stick to culture for this one because that's sort of what we're uh, what we're talking about here. You know, when you read, uh, there are people write about culture, so they're sociologists and they go into the jungle and they see a tribe and they watch what they do and they learn how they do that. And they, there's this kind of generic sense that culture is this some complex of knowledge, belief, art, morals, law, customs, and all that kind of stuff. Um, often inherited conceptions, you know, they're given from generation to generation. And they have this kind of arm's length distance. Um, but then there's a book that Cardinal Retzinger wrote before he was Pope Benedict called Truth and Tolerance. And he does this uh, summary t- the definition of culture and he says that culture is the record of man's search for his relationship to the divinity boom right very deep I love it every culture has to do things like grow their food and build a house and figure out who's the chief and who's in charge and you know how society works and how families work but at the end of the day the highest level of culture is what are the most important questions, the most basic and preliminary questions about existence? Why am I here? What's the highest and best way to live? Who made me? And to understand the relationship of man within all of creation. And so it's not really, it's purely theoretical in one sense, right? Who's God and who am I? But on the other hand, it's, there's the fundamental interest in our own existence. How do we take our proper place in the world? How do we be human in the best way? And so those are questions of how to live, and then living leads to culture pretty quickly. Dennis, in yes. um, maybe you explain this line to me. Then I think it's in the spirit of the liturgy where Pope Benedict talks about modern culture, quote, insofar as it is a culture, mm-hmm. end quote. Does he mean by that then because our modern or postmodern cultures have <laughs> seem to be getting all those questions wrong about where we come from, where we're going, uh, how we live, right in the matters of important things that it. it it isn't really a culture? Is that what he means? I think so. I mean, if the fundamental questions of culture are, how do I do what I do? How do I live the way I live in order to be in right relationship to the most fundamental questions of who am I as a human being? Who made me? What's the best way to live? Then if your culture is not interested in those things, the people are just kind of spinning their wheels. Oh, well, well, let's go to the Burning Man Festival and we'll you know have a lot of drugs and have this kind of out-of-body experience that's not really for any greater good it's just for the sensate experience of of that um pleasure of being lost in the whole so properly speaking you could say there's an attribute of culture there but it's not really answering these questions about the divinity so at least this is carl ratzinger's deeply christian view questions about 
the relationship to the divinity, God, it's always a preliminary and basic question. And if you don't understand that, who's God? How did he make me? What is creation? Where did it come from? Then you don't know how to live because you, you do everything wrong. You know, if you didn't have the Ten Commandments and all you were doing was coveting your neighbor's goods and your neighbor's wife and bearing false witness and worshiping idols, you wouldn't be living at the highest level of your human potential. And so everything follows from this ordering principle of who am I in relation to God? My wife always tells me I'm not living to my highest potential. <laughs> I, be- I can believe that. <laughs> I think I remember, uh, it's a Virgil Michael um, article called Christian Culture, and he makes a distinction between civilization and culture, and how, I think I'm getting this right, how certain groups can be very highly civilized but have a very low level of culture. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you can have all the, I think what he means by this is is maybe what we're experiencing today is, I mean, we have all of the, the iPhones and the internet speed and you know, we, can do a, we can do a podcast from three different states and things like that, but that doesn't mean that we're necessarily cultured people. We don't, if we don't have those fundamental truths down, then um, we're, we're still low level of culture. Right, and so what Cardinal Ratzinger says is that high culture, which we tend to think is like, you know, snobby social elites going to concerts and art openings. With monocles. Uh, with monocles and saying, how dare you? You know, this is not high culture. That's a kind of social strata, uh, social dominance. You know, I'm smarter than you. I'm more educated, civilized than you. In his view, high culture is that which is closer to the truth and closer to the expression of the truth. So he would say something like a well-developed mass setting by Mozart or something. Um, it takes this high level of sophistication, complication, the words of the mass directed to the praise of God, requires this many people to produce it. That's closer to the complexity and the unity and the harmony of the realities of heaven and therefore is high culture. You could also say the same thing about Gregorian chant, right? It's one voice praising God, uh, like the unity of the voices uh, praising heaven. So that would be higher culture, not just because snobby people understand it and go to concerts to listen to it, but because it's actually a product of human intellect and, and effort and will that is closer to the revelation of the right order between uh, God and creation and therefore is better to know. It contains more knowledge. It's like a great book with uh, beautiful prose and lots of illusions and, you know, really developed sort of award-winning book is better than some cheap um, thriller novel that's not really about much. And so that you could say it's high and low. Well, the language the language is high culture too because it's not you know, the way that you and I speak. I think, Chris, you always say that the it's the language of Main Street heaven and not Main Street USA. Is that something you said? Oh, probably. <laughs> I think, well, I think uh, uh, along these same lines is insofar as our words resemble and sim- uh, sacramentalize and echo with the eternal word of the Trinity, it could be said to be cultured because it's founded upon and reveals the the truest things in life, the the most really real things in life. And so that's probably more cultured language than, you know, using, a, you know, just fancy words for their own sake. It's the, the, the ground and the foundation is, uh, is cult, is the relationship uh, to the word, I think. Right, exactly. And so when we talk about culture, it's not just whatever we happen to be doing now. That That's just culture in a sense, but you can speak, and I know these are fighting words, you can speak about a better culture and a worse culture in a sense. Every culture to some degree 
that is a real culture, has some quest for truth, understanding of the divinity, understanding of beauty. They have established cultural traditions. So you don't just mow down cultures that you don't understand if you think they're primitive. On the other hand, if you had a debased culture, like our culture is in many ways, um, that's about violence and money and uh, cultural op you know, um, opposition to people you disagree with and just screaming at people, like the culture of the comm boxes on the internet, right? You could say that's not really a great culture a lot of the time because people are mean to each other and violent and it's all cultural domination. If you had a culture of comm boxes where people were thoughtful, kind, charitable, spoke well of each other, you could say that's a better comm box culture than that other one. And, um, and some cultures have, for whatever reason, been chosen by God through time to have the revelation of God to them. So you could say the chosen people of, of the Israelites, they had stuff directly from God. God the said, Israelite hey, combox. I like that. Well, yeah. Well, you know, they have, there are phrases in scripture, like what God, what other people has God come to, to teach his ways. And it's kind of an amazing thing. And so that's why the specialness of, of uh, Israelites is something quite, specific in scripture. Now you could say, well, didn't Confucius and Lao Tse and Japanese and Chinese cultures, didn't they develop a whole lot of truth? Absolutely. So at the end of the day, you have to kind of sift through all these cultures and find out what's true and then figure out how you can get the depth of, of truth. And this is why all cultures can learn from each other because each one has perfected a certain amount of uh, truthful understanding. I realized too that I misspoke, Jesse, when you asked me about enculturation and acculturation. Uh-oh. So let me correct myself on the record right now. Enculturation, E-N, is that cultural learning process that I was telling you about before. I called it acculturation, but it's actually not. Uh, it's enculturation. It's where a person's inserted into their culture and they learn how to, how to do things. Acculturation is when two cultures uh, come together and meet each other and then they start to learn from each other and grow into uh, another culture. So, Like me meeting my in-laws. Yeah, that would be, for instance, and actually that's not a bad microcosmic example, right? You have a culture of being a single man, your wife has a culture of being a single woman, where she puts her toothbrush, whether she likes the window open at night, all the things that couples have to learn, you know? And then you have two individual cultures in a way, how you like to live, and then when you, you're in the same room for the rest of your life, the same house, you really have to learn how to absorb other people's ideas and also nope, give up. I just have own. to learn how to absorb her ideas. Well, that's, that's it. That's what, <laughs> that's what Kevin Thornton said. His, his life got way better once he realized his wife was always right. So Katie, always right. I had a friend who always said, I always get the last word in when I argue with my wife. It's yes, dear. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But here's the key thing about culture. It's the fruit of figuring out who is the divinity, who, what's your relationship to the divinity, and what does the divinity want of you. So think about that. If you develop texts to praise God, say the Roman Missal, right? This is poetic, hopefully inspired by the Holy Spirit, but over time, the kind of not-so-great prayers get sifted out. The really beautiful ones that are you know, written by beautiful um, people with real talent stay, and eventually the prayers get better and better and better. Well, why are those prayers written at all? Because people are trying to figure out, what do I say to God? You know, when I want to praise him, what do I say? Glory to God in the highest. Well, that, there's a lot of theology encapsulated in that phrase, glory to God in the highest, not to the sun or the moon or the stars or me or the king. And so those words grow from the pre-existing reality. And if you're not looking for that pre-existing reality or you don't know it, you can't produce the culture that 
states that and makes it knowable. Same thing with music, vestments, architecture, art, bookbinding, you know, everything you use in mass is, okay, well, why do we make a red leather book with tooled gold leaf on it and patterns and all this stuff? Because this book is so holy, it's the thing we use to worship God. Therefore, the book should look like this. If you don't have that motivating principle, then the culture becomes, well, what should the book look like? Oh, well, it should look like the cheapest paperback that comes out of the low-end books because we're going to have missilettes you know, that we throw away every six months in the dumpster. That's a different kind of understanding of, um, of culture. And so I think in, in many ways, our world is in this battle between the either indifference to the things of God or a high culture, low culture uh, divide. And we're still trying to figure that all out. It seems that when you mentioned that Gloria, it reminded me of this, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this in the news uh, past few months about these translations of, first of all, the Lord's Prayer, uh, let us not be abandoned into temptations, which is how some of the countries, not the English language, is saying it, but also the Gloria, apparently in Italy was translated recently, uh, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men loved by the Lord. Hmm. And, uh, you know, th this is a whole nother podcast about uh, translations and Liturgium Authenticum and the Roman Missal and Manum Principium. But in the context of culture, it seems, I mean, Dennis, I think you said early on that culture is, is uh, what did you say, right from the get-go? It's like a container that passes along the important things of life. It's a transmitter. Well, it's... it's uh, it it is transmitted by one generation to the next. So there's some key elements of culture. One is it figures out that which is true about the ultimate questions, but goes beyond what's visible and you know opens the door to the divinity. But it always involves what Ratzinger calls a social agent or the cultural agent. That's the person who hands it on from one generation to the next. So well, see, the, yeah, this handing on, which I, uh, the Latin word is traditio, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think is that, you know, when we, and then you give this example of the Gloria, well, it's like we're denying in a certain way, our tradition and our culture. And so it's what I, again, whether the church is a culture or not, you know, it's not just the church in the battle with a secular culture out there in the world. It's kind of, she has her own internal cultural struggles about how to carry on and pass along the important things about how to worship God, for example. Right, exactly. So the, you know, the faith doesn't come down as some straightforward, immediate, you know, zap into your brain. It comes down through words and texts and human conventions and all that and humans are fallen so sometimes they get their conventions out of whack or they don't translate things properly or some of us, gets some in of the us way. are more fallen than others well then that's true right so sometimes you have this notion that somebody in charge is not good this is what carl ratzinger says about the social agent um or the cultural agent so the, the cultural agent is someone who accepts into himself or herself the experience of all the individuals that are around. So I, I've read every book, say, on the faith. If I don't buy it, or if I'm a jerk, or if I'm a finger wagger, you're going to hell, you know, you idiot, or if, I'm, if I live a morally you know, corrupt life, if there's something about me that's not compelling, then the next generation is not going to buy what I say. If I say, believe this or else, that's not really handing on this gift to the next generation so that somebody can make it their own and hand it into the next generation. So what Carl Ratzinger says is the crisis occurs when the, the hander on, er, <laughs> the social agent, cultural agent, can't succeed in making that compelling or persuasive to the next generation. And I think that's what we've seen in the last couple of generations. Um, we went from this kind of hyper-moralistic Jansenism of the 50s, do it or else, to this sort of 60s and 70s, do whatever you want, God loves you. Both of these were kind of unpersuasive in some ways, and I think we're getting into this stage now where we can say, 
Yes, God is just, but God is love itself. Yes, God wants your worship, but God is also kind. God will judge you in the last day based on your free will choices. However, he's a merciful judge and love and mercy and, and um, truth and judgment always have this proper relationship. And so that's when Christianity starts to become compelling because the culture has handed on something true. And then if you love people, right, you take care of the poor, you give people flowers, you write them a note, you know, all the things that you do that people know that you love them. And they say, wow, that seems to work for you. Uh, could that work for me too? You know, like any persuasive person trying to sell you something and the, one of those shopping channels says, look at this. And all the crowd goes, ooh, right? There's something compelling about that blender that, you know, in three seconds you can make a gourmet meal, you know, in a blender. It's like, wow. No that. blender can make a gourmet <laughs> meal in three but, seconds. That's ridiculous. But they try to convince you that there's something compelling about this. And <laughs> But you can that, imagine what it'd be like if it could. <laughs> well, right. You, and if it, if it loses that power to, to make you enchanted with it and believe that it's good for you, then... It stops, right? So the 60s, this is when everybody lost faith in everything into the 70s and Watergate and the police were corrupt and the Jim Crow laws and teachers and there used to be unbridled faith, unbridled? Well, undoubted faith in uh, authority figures. Then all of a sudden, a lot of authority figures found themselves untrustworthy because they'd been corrupted by power. Um, so culture has to be about the truth and it's a search for this record of truth, but then it involves someone handing it on to you who you find trustworthy and compelling. And if you don't, then it doesn't get handed on. And so that's the challenge, I think, liturgically, culturally, Catholic-wise. How do we make liturgy compelling? How do you help people understand what it's about? And then we become you know, the social agent or the cultural agent for the next generation. And this, in part, is what you're doing at Benedictine. Well, that's the hope, right? So... Um, you know, everybody's got an opinion. And if you just say, I believe this, and if you don't believe it, you're a jerk. No, you're a jerk. And nobody can agree. Well, okay. How do we do what we've been doing with the liturgy guys? I mean, honestly, we've been cultural agents on the podcast, or at least we're trying to, right? So somebody says, I don't believe X, Y, Z, or I don't understand one, two, three, or I never even thought of that. And then, oh, but I listened to the liturgy guys and they told me something about the divinity, you know, not that we have, you know, the bat phone to God, but in some ways, you know, the fruit of prayer, the teaching of the church, the normative documents, the, the books the church gives us for liturgy, they have their own compelling power. And then if you understand it and can speak it, then people say, oh yeah, that seems right to me. Okay, got it. And I don't know what you hear, Jesse or Chris, but every now and then I'll run into a priest who says, oh, I listened to your podcast and I used that in my homily and it was really helpful to solve some, you know, liturgical debate we were having in the parish. And then instead of people being fighting about things all the time. They're kind of at rest with the things that are happening in their world. And then this common understanding binds them all together. Most people just tell me that they like Dennis or Chris. So. Yeah. They just wish Jesse would stop with the puns. <laughs> but I, you know, what I'm saying sounds so peaceful, right? And easy for people who are Catholic. That, oh yeah, well, of course it's the record of search for God. This is not the normative kind of academic thing, right? Because that makes it sound like Ooh, there's a God, there's something outside of me that I have to conform to. And of course, Christ is always the principal agent in all of this, right? Christ is the one who reveals to us what God is like. His life is the one to be um, imitated. And so to say there's kind of one full way to, to eternal bliss with God, and that is Christ. And all of culture comes from Christ and leads to Christ. That's a big claim, and not everybody in the world's ready to accept that. But I think as Catholics and Christians, 
we have to insist on that point that God whose love itself made himself knowable to us through Christ, through the Christian message, and that's the privileged path. And you would hope that anybody thought that their path was the privileged path. You know, if you were a Buddhist, I would want you to convince me, convince me of the Buddhist path <laughs> being the best. That's why you're doing it, right? Um, and so we have to stay with that Christocentric view of things. So in a way, this continuing this podcast, uh, uh, even when you're gone, is a way to continue uh, doing that, to create, you know, have this podcast continue to be an agent of culture in a more direct way through the mission that you're trying to instill at, at Benedictine. Yeah, and culture involves everything, right? Music, art, architecture, law, moral life. I mean, there's Culture is such a broad word that there's a, a million things you could bring into it. Theater, you know, all kinds of stuff. There's so, like a culture club, you know? Y- yeah, with a K. With two Ks there. <laughs> two Ks. Culture comma, club. Comma, comma, comma. Comma, yeah, That's right. Chris, um, are you old enough to understand that reference I just made? Oh, he's old enough for sure. For sure. All right. Well, uh, that about does the, does the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Well, that was so. That was the weirdest thing I've ever said. I think that about, that about does, does the, the time. time. That but about know, does the time. Let me let me leave you with this last uh, thing. The Ooh, Cardinal give Ratz, us one more Cardinal nugget. Ratzinger. He s- said, "In the modern world, and this goes back to Chris's question, he said there's really no such thing as a culture-free faith. Uh, you can't have faith without a culture because faith, by definition, comes from language, word, actions, gestures, Christmas trees, all that stuff." However, he said, outside of modernity, there's really no such thing as a religion-free culture. So you can have a technological age that's religion-free. Historically, there was no such thing as a religion-free culture, whether it's, you know, a tribal culture in the Amazon or uh, a culture, you know, faith in the in the Eastern um, countries or in Europe or wherever it comes from. And so the question is, can you have a culture without religion? And I think he argues no, because they don't answer the ultimate questions. What's my relationship to the divinity? That's always the, the epicenter of all cultural decisions. And that's a good one for liturgy too. What's the, what's the culture of the, the dialogue of the Trinity, the culture of heaven? Is what we're doing on earth uh, conforming to that or not? And without that, it's kind of do whatever you want. But with that, it really helps us to figure out what's the best way to, to behave. So what I'm hearing is that Cardinal Ratzinger said something like, you got to have faith, faith, faith. Like that? You gotta have culture, culture, culture <laughs> to transmit the faith, faith, faith. I can just uh, see him singing that. That's boy, that's boy George, right? It is Boy George. Yeah. No, 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 no. Oh, uh, it's not. Not Boy George. It's uh, the boy George was George Culture Michael. Club. George, George Michael. There's a George boy, in there. Boy somewhere. George Michael. Yeah. Brown. That's right. Rest of development, right there. George Michael. Culture Culture Club was uh, Boy George. Okay, got it. Yeah. Got the George overlap. Yeah, you got one George. Yeah. There's many uh, more things we can say about culture, and probably over the time of uh, the next few podcasts, we can add some things. But that's the central point right there. Record. Well, I was just going to say that uh, I was kind of hoping to get into some of the beauty stuff, but maybe we'll save that for next well, week. Yeah, the culture and beauty are two, they're just big, big things. You can't, can't squeeze them all into one podcast, so we can do that another time. All right, Chris, did you have anything smart you wanted to add to any of that? Or, uh, nope. Nope? Okay. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> All right. Uh, should we answer a liturgy question, I think? We can. All right. That about does the time for the liturgy. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine a priest closing the Mass? <laughs> All right. That about does the time. <laughs> for the Mass. Go in peace. All right. 
So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from Kevin, not the Kevin, just a Kevin. As far Kevin, as we know. Well, I suppose that's true. Well, it says uh, we miss you, DMAC, so maybe it is our Kevin. Well, that's true. Hmm. All right. Kevin says, hey, guys, I've heard the main altar linen described as a burial cloth for Jesus. This makes some sense given that the altar is Christ during Mass. However, is this an accurate symbol? If so, is there theological and or traditional, sorry, if so, is there theological and or tradition to support this imagery? We miss you, DMIC. Actually, this is Kevin Gregus. He's a oh, seminarian. Oh, yeah. Hey, Kevin. So, answers, please. Do you have any ideas, Chris? Uh, here's, uh, here's how I would say it. Is first of all, uh, symbols never or rarely mean one thing. They often mean a variety of things. So let's take like the Paschal candle. Sometimes at the Easter Vigil, it signifies the pillar of fire that's going through uh, the Red Sea. Uh, but then later when the priest uh, lowers the candle into the water, he says this prayer that's called an epiclesis, asking the Holy Spirit to come down upon this water. So at that point, it's like it's symbolizing the uh, fiery column of cloud. So kind of more of a Holy Spirit thing. And almost every symbol uh, in the liturgy has these kind of multiple meanings, which is because it's, it's, it's poetic. It's, it's, that's the type of discourse that it is. It's not trying to be, um, what would you say, didactic or kind of uh, like a lecture. It's meant to be multifaceted. That's how symbols work. So that being said, what does the altar symbol, or excuse me, the altar cloth mean on the altar? I think it can mean, and probably does in the tradition, a variety of things. So for example, it seems to me that uh, its most obvious symbol, again, to my mind, is, is it uh, represents like an alb. So, for example, the, the, the germ says that you can use different colored cloths, but the, the uppermost one has to be white. And so I think this is evocative of the alb, which means white, that Christ and Christians use. You know, when St. Stephen sees uh, Jesus in heaven, he's uh, standing and he's dressed in white. Uh, the newborn baby or the newly baptized baby puts on white. So it can represent kind of a kind of a festal radiant garment of Christ. But here's another one. Uh, after the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday, uh, it says the altar is stripped of its altar cloths. And at least in the extraordinary form, I think this is the case or in the tradition, uh, this was accompanied by a ceremony where the priest would say at least part of Psalm 22, uh, where it says they divided my garments among them and for my vesture, they cast lots. So in this instance, uh, kind of the, the removing of the cloths uh, signifies, you know, uh, that, that 
garment that Jesus was wearing at the time of his crucifixion. And sure enough, the, the altar is Christ the priest, Christ the victim, and Christ the altar. So now let's go to this one. Does it represent his burial cloth? I think the answer is... Why not? Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's a good answer. In fact, I looked this up in the old Catholic encyclopedia, which of course is from 1903, and it quotes the old um, ordination rites of the, and the pontifical, you know, the bishop's book, and it does say the linens represent the body of Christ, um, the linens in which the body of Christ was wrapped. Mm. So okay. uh, straightforward, right there. Yeah, yeah, and it probably means more than just the things we've mentioned. So again, that's the nature of liturgical symbols. They convey on so many different levels. So uh, yeah, with the Catholic encyclopedia or even digging into the patristic tradition, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, catechesis on that altar cloth symbolizing uh, uh, the, the burial cloths. I think there's a couple of other things you might add, you know, in, in speculating from a good place. One is that if the altar is a table, right? So it's not just a regular table, but it is the table of the banqueting feast of the Lamb. It's the place from which Christ is served to us, uh, the table to which we're invited. You know, when you have guests and you want a proper festivity, you have candles, you have a cloth, tablecloth. Um, this is not to reduce the, the mystical vision down to the earthly vision, but to say, as you love to say, Chris, human culture is involved in these kinds of things. Um, the same entry in the... Um, Old Catholic Encyclopedia says it was also representing the God's faithful, which is interesting, the members of Christ by whom the Lord is a, a encompassed. So if you think about the body of Christ being made of many members, in a sense, his flesh is the mm. flesh of all of creation. It sort of wrapped him, you know, we, when you Christ put on the skin of us and taking on um, humanity. And it also says the purity and devotion of the faithful. It quotes Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, that the fine linen as compared to the justifications of the saints. And all the saints in heaven are described as being in white robes. And so that's always and the... All, uh, and the martyrs are beneath the altar too. Right, right. So the heavenly perfection is signified by these clean white robes washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. So um, if the altar is Christ, Christ is wrapped in his own heavenly perfection, uh, his garment, the heavenly garment. But then if Christ is the mystical body, which is us, then we're signified by all those threads woven together. Mm. Um, and then it's relates to his earthly burial in the tomb as well. So um, it gives you an interesting spin on the the uh, Shroud of Turin, right? If this was the cloth that Christ was wrapped in and his image, image was made on it, and if that cloth represents the faithful who are, you know, surrounded, encompassing him, and then his image is impressed into us, that's a, that's a good image. I never thought of that until just right now. So who knew a little altar cloth could be all this interesting? Uh, all right. It, thank you, Kevin, for your question. Uh, good luck at school this year. And if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Dennis, uh, any plans on getting a new Twitter account? No? DMACAD. All right. The one that doesn't exist. Okay. Mm. Actually, it got taken over by somebody else. I can I still log in, but there's other people's stuff on it, so don't go to DMACAD. Oh, weird. Maybe anyway. I'll do one for the Center for Beauty and Culture, and then we'll figure hey, that out. You can do D-Benedy. <laughs> I like it. I like it. it. <laughs> Benedictine? Oh, yeah, got it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you and God bless. Bye, God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Find out more at benedictine.edu.